Hi, friends. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Let's get started um, today with Adult Sunday School. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the gift of this day and for the new week um, that has begun. We thank you that we can gather, Father, on the first day of the week, this day that's set apart uh, for you. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, keep the Lord's Day holy today um, in terms of our thoughts and our affections and our deeds. We pray that you would um, be merciful to us today as we are gathered together um, by your Spirit for worship um, here in a little bit. We pray now that uh, your presence would be with us as we um, discuss your word. Uh, we pray for your help and your presence and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Um, we are continuing a series on the book of Job that we began um, last week. And um, I just wanted to start this morning by seeing if there were any questions from last time um, that we might address. And I gave a kind of overview of the book and um, its content um, last week. Anybody have anything you were itching to ask last week and didn't have the opportunity to? or comment, or anything like that. All right, well, I'll do a little bit of review here, and, and um, maybe something will come to mind. So, um, what we talked about last week, um, Job, we said, is a historical figure. Um, he is, uh, this is not, a, in my view, a fictional tale, or a parable, or anything of that sort. This is a real man. These are real things that took place in his life. Um, his story likely takes place um, during the time of the patriarchs, um, uh, and uh, that's based on a couple of things. One, the length of his life. Another, the sacrificial practices that he is engaging in. Um, it's likely that he's not part of the people of Israel, um, partially because the people of Israel as such uh, don't really exist yet, um, at least the people of Israel that came out from Egypt. Uh, he's probably before that time period. Um, we talked about how Job may be the person that is named Jobab in Genesis 36. I won't rehearse that whole argument, but um, that's certainly a possibility, um, although it is speculative. There's no hard evidence. If that's true, then he would be fifth in the line of descendant from Abraham, um, but through the line of Esau as it branches off um, when Jacob and Esau are brothers. Uh, Job is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. This is something that we talked about um, last week. Um, the, the two other places in the scriptures give us a kind of uh, paradigm for interpreting the life of Job. Um, first, he's mentioned in Ezekiel uh, 14 by the prophet there. Um, as the Lord says that um, um, even if um, Noah and Daniel and Job were alive at the time and living in Jerusalem, um, still the Lord would not spare the city. Um, he, only their lives would be spared because of their righteousness. It's a it's a picture of, you know, essentially Ezekiel is picking uh, the three, three of the most righteous, um, paradigmatically righteous men um, in the Old Testament um, and saying, the Lord is saying, even if these men were alive, still uh, Jerusalem would not be spared for their sake. Um, so he's listed there with uh, Noah and Daniel. Um, also in James 5, we're told that um, uh, we should be patient and steadfast in our sufferings and trials, and the apostle says to um, be like the prophets. Indeed, consider um, Job, um, who was steadfast and obedient um, in his trials and his suffering. 
And so Job is presented there as an explicit example of uh, patience and steadfastness in the midst of um, suffering. And that gives us a good um, clue to the book that when we uh, see the person of Job, um, we should see someone who that we're called to emulate, um, someone we're called to imitate in our lives, in our own circumstances. Uh, we talked last week about how Job's story is a story of death and resurrection. It has a kind of U-shape. Um, Job begins um, as a blameless man. We'll look at that this morning. He goes into suffering and then comes out on the other side uh, even more glorious, even more mature and wise, um, even making sacrifice for his friends. Um, Job also in some ways complicates um, a kind of simplistic perspective on the wisdom literature and the scriptures, especially Proverbs. I don't think Proverbs is simple, but I think it's, it's possible to read Proverbs in a kind of simplistic way that says, if I do the right kinds of things, then God will bless me. And by bless me, I mean he'll give me an easy time of it. Um, he will um, give me a long life. He'll give me prosperity. He'll give me all the things that I want. And uh, Job certainly complicates that because Job is uh, someone who suffers without um, cause, without some specific um, thing that he has done wrong that God is uh, punishing him for. That's kind of the um, whole point of the book in some ways. And um, in this, Job gives us a clue about what it really means to be blessed by God. What does it mean to be blessed? It means things like our Lord Jesus teaches, um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn uh, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who weep. Um, these are the things that our Lord says. And Job gives us a kind of precursor, a figure that embodies many of those beatitudes. And of course, Jesus embraces that in his own life. Um, a key verse in Job is Job 13, 15, um, where Job says, Though he, though it is the Lord, slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Um, Job is um, commended for this kind of attitude, for uh, refusing to curse the Lord, refusing to have contempt for God. Um, even in the midst of the, some of the most extreme suffering we could imagine a human person to experience. And um, he says, even though the Lord takes my life, still I will trust him, I will hope in him. And yet also I will argue my ways to his, case, his face. I will continue to plead my case and my innocence with the Lord. So Job is this figure that on the one hand trusts the Lord, but it's not a simple trust. It's a complex trust. It's a trust that is also uh, pleading with God um, and, and, and pleading his case, his innocence, so to speak, uh, before the Lord. So uh, both those things are true for Job at once, um, even as he is a kind of model for us. Um, Job's story we talked about last week does not answer the why of his suffering. Um, that question is never answered in the, in the whole book. Um, but Job does answer, in some ways, the question of how we are to suffer. So Job is a book that is less of a, sometimes Job is, is presented as a, um, as, a, as a book that answers why people suffer, why good people suffer, that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure that it really does give a lot of great answers to that question in any kind of fundamental way, um, but it does demonstrate a kind of how righteous people are to suffer, uh, what righteous and faithful suffering looks like. 
Um, and in this way, Job um, sort of embodies what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about in reference to the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 5, that although he was a son, um, our Lord Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And if there is a why um, that is given in Job, um, it's not given explicitly, and it's given only, I think, explanatory power through the life of Christ and the apostolic interpretation of that life. Um, where we can say, I think, looking back on Job through the lens of Jesus, that one of the things that he was, was happening for him was that he was learning obedience through his suffering and being made mature, um, even as our Lord Christ was um, in preparation for his death and resurrection. Um, I also want to say that the book of Job is about God. I didn't have a chance to read this quote last week, but I wanted to read it today. Um, sometimes Job is really portrayed as this, you know, and it is Job-centered in a lot of ways, um, but it is also, like every book in the Scriptures, a book about the character of God. Uh, Lindsay Wilson, um, who is an Australian scholar, um, has an interesting commentary on Job. He writes, he says, a final purpose of the book is to focus on the character of God. This is an underlying issue right through the dialogue as the friends pontificate about how God must act, and that's certainly one of the arguments of the three friends, that they understand God's ways and they can interpret God's ways to Job. Um, they can interpret his experience for him. Uh, yet Job insists that the way he had previously thought about God cannot account for his present experience of God's apparent displeasure. God is silent toward and seemingly absent from Job in the face of his great suffering. Um, and that is, you know, one of the deepest um, things that Job wrestles with, right? It's not just the things that he loses or his physical afflictions or the death of his children. It is God's apparent, and I say apparent, um, uh, you know, with emphasis, a God's apparent absence. Um, the Theophany and Yahweh speeches, chapters 38 to 41, the end of the book, insist that God cannot be constrained by narrow human categories. As the sovereign creator and maintainer of order, God reaffirms his freedom to run the world as he chooses and insists that he must be treated as God, right? Um, ultimately, Job says, I will shut my mouth and listen. Um, I don't have any words to say in response to what God says. The book presents a majestic picture of God's power and greatness as a foundational truth. Only when God is treated as God can humans become the people they were meant to be. Uh, we cannot exhaustively know God's design or purposes, so we need to be content with letting God be God. And this is one of the, we'll talk, think about this some this morning, but it really is interesting, um, the, the sort of heavenly counsel things that happen in the book of Job in chapters 1 and 2, as the Lord engages with the Satan, the accuser, um, who I think is the devil, as we think of him, um, all of that is hidden from Job, right? Job doesn't have some sort of, you know, we read about that in the final form of the book as we experience it today. Um, but in his suffering, Job doesn't know any of those things. He doesn't know what's happening um, above the line, so to speak, right? And God, even at the end of the book, doesn't come and say to Job, hey, Job, just so you know, I had this uh, dialogue with, you know, the Satan, the accuser, and, you know, that, I mean, those questions are never given. Those, or those insights are never given to Job. 
Um, he has to live below the line. And essentially the Lord's argument at the end of the book is you can't get over that line. You can't see into my um, divine wisdom and, and um, counsel um, in any fundamental way. And so there is that aspect of Job that a lot of it, the wisdom is a creaturely wisdom, a wisdom that is um, contingent. Um, so yeah, yeah, Kim. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe eventually there was, there was some revelation. I mean, somebody was given insight, whether that was Job or a later editor or you know, I mean, some people think that maybe Solomon maybe put the book together in its final form. So, yeah, yeah. But certainly in terms of the narrative of what takes place in the book of Job, Job has never given those, those answers. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy. Right. Yeah, he bear, he bears witness to something, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yep. All right, let me get into Job 1 here this morning, and um, let's begin to look at the text. I'm going to read this um, chapter for us, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, so I'll be reading from the ESV if you want to follow along on your device or on your Bible. There was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female servants, I'm sorry, female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man <laughs> was the greatest of all the people of the East, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan, or literally in the Hebrew, the Satan, which means the accuser, also came among them. Yahweh said to the accuser, from where have you come? The accuser answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the accuser answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? On every side you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to the accuser, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the accuser went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we've put that text uh, before you and placed it before your minds. I'm sure you've read it before, but it's good to hear it again. Um, so there's some notes here from your handout um, I want to run through and then we can talk a little bit. Uh, first, it's important to notice that Job is described as blameless. Uh, the text says, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Um, that Fearing God and turning away from evil is almost direct quotation of places like Proverbs 3, where it talks about what it means to be wise, um, to, to fear God and also to avoid those things that he prohibits, um, what is evil. Um, but Job is described as blameless. It doesn't mean he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he um, was perfect, but it did mean, it does mean, um, that he is a man who had integrity before the Lord. Um, who was whole in that way, who did not have hidden sin, did not have hypocrisy in his life. Um, he was without blemish in that way. Um, when he sinned, he confessed it to the Lord and was forgiven, and his life was one of integrity. Um, there's a connection directly there with Noah in Genesis 6. Um, this word blameless is not used very frequently in the scriptures. Um, 
Noah, though, is said in the midst of the evil of his generation, um, where everyone was sinning continually um, in all kinds of violent and horrible ways, that Noah was a blameless man. Uh, Noah was righteous and blameless. Um, so that same word, Hebrew word is used there of Noah. It's also used in, in Genesis 17 where Abraham is called by the Lord to walk before him in a blameless way. It isn't said that Abraham was blameless, but that he was called to be blameless before the Lord as the Lord covenants with him in Genesis um, 17. Um, and David is described, interestingly, as blameless in 1 Kings 9 um, when Solomon is about to be, um, uh, you know, to dedicate the temple and all of those things. Uh, the Lord says, if you will walk before me and be blameless as your father David was, um, then I will bless you and establish your house and et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is interesting because, of course, David was a great sinner. Um, but David is also called blameless because he is someone who had integrity before the Lord, who um, even with you know, God's intervention in the story of Bathsheba and Uriah um, confessed his sin to the Lord. Um, there's also a sacrificial connection in Exodus 12. Um, the Israelites are to take a lamb that is without blemish, but it's the same Hebrew word, blameless, that's used here. Um, um, and there's also in Leviticus 1, you know, you're, when you take a sacrifice, it is to be an animal without blemish or blameless. Um, same Hebrew word. I think that's interesting. Um, to be blameless, in a sense, is to be prepared to be a sacrifice to God. Um, to be burned up, to be offered to God. Um, we see that, of course, unpacked by Paul in Romans 12, that we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And I think that's an interesting thing to ponder and think about um, for Job, not only that he, um, you know, certainly the writer is, is, is trying to establish that Job was not, you know, sinning when the suffering came upon him, but also there's a sacrificial connection there, right? That it is a, a precursor of our Lord Jesus, who is the truly blameless one without blemish in every way, um, who is offered up to God. And I think that that's a picture that we're meant to think about. And, um, and it gives us a lens even for our suffering. Um, that is a way, in a way, our suffering is a way in which we are offered to the Lord, as Romans 12 talks about, um, as living sacrifices to God. Um, um, and we're, we're meant to be blameless as we do that. Um, it's something, I think, to ponder. Um, Job, um, verses 2 to 4 in chapter 1, Job is clearly portrayed as a wealthy and prosperous man. He's the greatest of all the people in the East. Um, he has lots of possessions. He has lots of children. Um, he is um, uh, uh, not just an individual person, but he is a public figure. Um, he is a man who is the greatest. Um, uh, if, you know, Job, or if Genesis 36 is a true connection with Job, then he is a king. Um, Jobab was a king in the east, and I think it's possible that Job was a kind of king figure um, in his um, land, and that the three men who come to him are kind of counselors, right, advisors of the king. I certainly think that's a possible uh, way to think about the story of Job. It is certainly important whether he was a king or not, to think about Job as more than just some random guy. Um, he was someone who had responsibility, someone who had been entrusted with authority and responsibility over many people. Um, and it's also important to see that Job is, in the beginning of the story, he is fulfilling the mandate to Adam. He is being blessed as Adam was 
charged to be blessed and to obey. Um, he is being fruitful and multiplying. Um, he is taking dominion over the earth. He has all these animals. He has all these children. Um, and those are not just random things, right? Those are things that are in keeping with the Adamic um, mandate. Um, and he, we see the Lord blessing him and him uh, being obedient to the Lord in that way. In Job 1.5, we read about Job um, offering sacrifices for his sons and his daughters. Um, Job here is a kind of priestly figure, and um, that, I think, implies that he lived before the priestly line was established with Levi and Aaron. Um, he says uh, he does these things. Um, he offers sacrifice continually for his children. And just to, by way of reference, it says, you know, each son would host a feast on his day. There are seven sons. I don't think that means that there were daily feasts necessarily. I mean, it could have been. It's not excluded. Um, but um, it, it could be weekly. It could even be an annual feast. Um, later in uh, Job 3, Job talks about cursing the, his day, which by which he means the day of his birth. Um, and so it may mean the, day, the birthdays of these men um, is the day they would hold these great feasts. Probably not a daily thing, though. But in any case, Job is regularly, continually, as verse 5 says, um, offering sacrifice not only for himself, but also for his children. Uh, for he says, um, in case they have cursed God in their hearts, right? Who knows what they may have done internally? And that introduces a really important theme in the book of Job, which is um, to curse God. Um, uh, one interesting thing to note here is that whenever you see that word cursed God and, you know, Satan says that if you, um, to the Lord, that if you withdraw this hedge of protection, then he will curse you to your face. Um, literally, the word there is bless. It's barak. It's the same word that's translated bless other places in the Hebrew. Um, but it's being used euphemistically here, um, which is interesting to think about. Um, so literally, um, the text reads, in case they have blessed God in their hearts. Um, and, but, but the meaning there clearly contextually is the opposite. And, you know, we use this kind of, we do this kind of thing um, in English, right? You know, um, you know, your spouse does something uh, that you think is dumb and you say, oh, good, right? Um, you don't mean, oh, good. You mean the opposite of that. Um, uh, and, you know, whatever, we, we use this kind of, you know, this is a, a way that language functions, but it's an interesting thing to think about in this context. Um, so what is cursing God? Because that's the thing that Job has um, said, it's, it's said that he doesn't do that throughout the book, and he never does. Um, and it's the test that the accuser, Satan, gives for him, that he will curse God to his face if the Lord um, stops protecting him. Um, one thing to say is that cursing God, whatever that is, is apparently not an unforgivable sin because Job is offering sacrifice for his children in case they have done it, right? Um, in case they have cursed God in their hearts. Um, I think cursing God fundamentally is to be contemptuous of the Lord, um, to be, um, yeah, I think contemptuous is the right kind of word, to hate him in your heart to hate his ways in your life, his providence, um, to um, have a kind of fundamental rejection of him in that way. And um, it is important to say that ultimately the sin of apostasy 
um, or the sin of any unbeliever um, who hears the gospel and doesn't respond to it is fundamentally cursing God, right? Um, people don't leave the church just, you know, because they get bored. Um, they leave and they curse God as they go um, for whatever the thing is that they're cursing him for. Um, people who reject the gospel, you know, maybe they seem apathetic, but in a fundamental way, they're being contemptuous of the Lord. Um, they're being, um, they're hating him by not responding to his love. And so ultimately cursing God is a kind of fundamental sin, um, I think, um, of rebellion against the Lord. And it's something that all of us are tempted forward towards. And, you know, we, we can wrestle with that at times in our lives. There may even be times when we have cursed God in a moment. Um, and, um, and again, that's not to say that's not a forgivable sin, a sin that can be repented of. Um, but it is a dangerous sin because it is the sin that leads to hardness of heart and ultimate rejection of the Lord. Uh, Job 6, 1, 6 through 12. Um, I just want to note, you heard this as I read the story, um, that literally the word Satan there is just a you know, kind of um, literal um, transposition of the Hebrew word. Um, and the Hebrew word is the word accuser, and it has a definite article in front of it. So it's not just accuser, it's the accuser. Um, whenever you read the word Satan in the Old Testament, that's true. Um, that Satan is literally, it just the text says, the accuser. And I think that's really interesting and helpful for us as we think about the person of Satan or the devil, um, that this is who he is. Um, this is, of course, talked about in Revelation 12. Um, he is described as the one who accuses the brethren, right? That is who Satan is or the devil is. Um, if you go back to Genesis 3, you can think about how Satan there is not accusing the human beings. Um, he's accusing God, right? That's he, the first thing he says when he opens his mouth is, did God really say? And then he says, um, you won't really die. Um, no, uh, God wants to hide things from you. He wants to, he's accusing the Lord, right, of being uh, duplicitous and being um, cruel. Um, and, and so this is what Satan does. He is, as our Lord Christ says in John 8, um, the father of lies, and he is always lying. Um, he is always um, being, so he's not only an accuser, but he's also a deceptive accuser, right? He's someone who lies with his accusations. And I think that's really important for us to think about as we read the story. It's also important for us to think about as we um, consider um, our own uh, relationship to the devil. Um, notice Satan's accusation of Job and of God in verse 9, right? Jo God draws Job's, or Satan, the accuser's, attention to Job. Um, it, what's happening there in the heavenly council seems to be um, that the angels are assembling before the Lord Satan is a fallen angel, of course. He comes into the Lord's presence and he, um, the Lord calls him out and he speaks to Satan and says, what have you been up to? He says, walking around on the earth and seeing what's going on. And um, the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And then he repeats that description of Job that was given in the first verse, right? That he is an upright and blameless man, that he fears God, he turns away from evil. And then um, Satan has this accusation um, uh, does Job fear God for no reason, right? Um, uh, does he fear him not because he loves you, uh, Lord, um, he says to Yahweh, um, but doesn't he just fear you because you've given him good things, because you've 
protected his life. You've made him prosperous. Um, so this is a kind of fundamental accusation of Job and of the Lord, that their relationship is a transactional one, right? That God has won Job's affection and loyalty simply by, you know, opening up the heavens and giving him lots of good stuff. Um, and so this is an accusation both of Job and of the Lord. Um, it's also important to see here, and it's an accusation that fails, right? Ultimately, Satan is a liar and proved to be a liar by the end of the book because Job does not simply trust the Lord um, because of this hedge of protection. Um, notice that the text clearly affirms that God is the one who is sovereign over all of Job's losses and suffering, right? That's something that is really important here. Um, Satan um, is on a leash, um, as Luther says. Um, he is leashed by God, chained by God. Um, he does not do anything on his own initiative in a fundamental way. Um, he is under the Lord's sovereign um, authority, and that's certainly true. And in the book, after the first couple chapters, first two chapters, Satan is never again mentioned. Um, he's never given as an explanation of why these things have happened to Job. It's never said the devil did it. Um, Job never says Satan has attacked me. The Lord never says at the end, well, Job, this happened because of, you know, this thing with Satan. Always throughout the book, Job is doing business with God because he understands that all that took place in his life was because of God's um, sovereignty. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, all of this is hidden from Job. Job does not see verses 6 to 12. He's just living his life, and then all of a sudden, these messengers start showing up and telling him about devastation. Um, and then in 13 to 12, 22, Job's suffering begins, right? We know this story. He loses his, his, his animals, his servants, and then finally his children. So all of his wealth, all of his relationships, and then finally even his um, children, whom he obviously loves very deeply. Job doesn't hide his grief, and I think that's important to see, right? Job doesn't say, he doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's all fine. You know, my hope is in heaven. Um, no big deal. Um, he tears his robe. He shaves his head. He gets down on the ground and kisses the dust. Um, he is devastated um, by these things, and he shows it um, in his actions. Um, but he also um, worships the Lord. He also acknowledges God's sovereignty. Um, he says, naked I came from the womb, um, naked I will return. Um, Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. So there's this fundamental submission to God, even in the context of that great grief and sorrow. Um, he blesses the name of Yahweh. He does not curse God's name um, as Satan had accused him of in his prediction of that he would do. He does the opposite. And he is commended by this, by the narrator. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. All right, we've got a few minutes to talk about um, things. Yeah, James. Yeah, that God is malicious or God is evil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. that seems to be the most, I mean, parallel there is the introduction of Satan as the Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, it's a great connection. Thank you. 
Right. Yeah, God is not good or trustworthy. Or, yeah, no, that's a great connection. Yeah, Satan ultimately wants to join us to join him in cursing God. Um, that's his, the point of his accusations and his lies. Um, yeah, Derwin. Not that's that's all true. Yeah, yeah, Katina. Sorry, Jeremy. I, you spoke earlier, so I'm going around. Katina. God doesn't lie, yeah. Yeah, we don't have we don't have fundamental understanding of the whys. That's right. No, I agree with that. Yeah. No, I, I think, no, I, I appreciate that you saying that, James, and I think that's a fair point. And I, one, my sense is that, and this is the close here to give uh, Paul some time um, with singing, but um, I suspect that that is part of the literary function of the book and what the Spirit is doing um, for us, is that as we read the book, we're actually invited in to wrestle, right, 
um, in a similar way that Job wrestles almost um, with God's goodness. Um, is God really good um, in this scenario? Um, even given what we are disclosed in terms of being up, you know, above the line that takes place. And it is important, as Kathina said, that even though we do get above the line in terms of God's explicit discussion with the accuser, with the devil, um, we're not given insight into the counsel of God, right? We're not given insight into God's own uh, logic. We're only given insight into what he actually says to Satan, um, which is not comprehensive knowledge. Right? It's partial knowledge. Um, and I think, I think that's a literary device. It's a really interesting one. It, it almost draws us into the story and forces us to reckon with, maybe God is malicious, right? Maybe he is arbitrary. Um, and then the rest of the book, of course, is going to um, sort of work against that in different ways. So I think that's right. Yeah. And many of us, as we've read Job, have had this experience, right? That we are like Job. We wrestle with what Job wrestles with, which is, is God trustworthy? Is he, is he, is he faithful? And we do that because of our own experience, but also because we're um, being um, drawn into the story and experience of Job himself. Um, and again, all of this points to Jesus, right? We could have similar questions about um, the life of our Lord and what he suffers. Um, you know, what kind of God? I mean, and then there are all sorts of, you know, I don't know, just theories out there, right? You know, God is this like vengeful father, you know, people will say, who, um, who wants to punish his son. And how can you believe in a God like this? And, um those are, those are things that we're called to wrestle with, even in the life of Jesus. I, I don't think that's an appropriate perspective on the atonement, to be clear. Um, Paul, I'll give it to you. <laughs>